We are big fans of Dr. Tim Elmore. This is his second leader chat. Last time, we discussed his impressive book, Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership. We invited him back to talk through his newest book, A New Kind of Diversity. His research and insights are invaluable for us as leaders. Here, he and Jeff talk through strategies on how to recognize the challenges of generational diversity in the workplace and leverage them into opportunities. It's an awesome discussion. Enjoy. Ladies, gentlemen, leaders, educators, welcome to Leader Chat. Today is a special day. It's special because I have invited, we have invited my good friend and colleague, Dr. Tim Elmore, who's going to talk to us for a couple of really important reasons. Number one, in some ways, we're preparing for our leadership summit that's coming this October, which is going to be very exciting. But the other is we're inviting Tim back because he has a, another piece of work that just needs to be talked about. It's as relevant or as relevant as I can imagine. Everything that we're going to talk about today aligns to what we know schools, specifically our adults, are facing in schools as they're working together. And so this concept on a new kind of diversity is what we're going to dive into today. Really briefly, even though we've talked with Tim before, let me just remind our listeners or our viewers, if you are a member of the Leadership Circle and you're watching this video, Dr. Tim Elmore is the founder and CEO Growing Leaders. Elmore has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, USA Today, Psychology Today, and has been featured on CNN's Headline News and Fox and Friends. Tim has written over 35 books, including Habitudes, Images That Form Leadership Habits and Attitudes. We, in the past, have talked about specifically the pandemic population, an incredible book as relevant as it could be um, at one particular time, and then most recently, The Eight Paradoxes of great leadership. And if you haven't read that, go back and read it because it really focuses on how you create this balance process as a leader and think of yourself almost by comparing these dichotomies. It's really, really an important read, which is why we talked about it. And today we're focusing on a new kind of diversity and you will see why and how this is relevant to our adults working together to serve, in our case, schools. So, Tim, welcome. Thank you so much for being here, literally in person. It's so much more fun to do this face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball. So I agree. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah, how have you been? Uh, well, well, yeah. And we lost our sunshine. Yes, so, we did. Yeah, we'll yeah. have to create it inside. We, will, we yeah. will do our best. We'll do our best. So, um, before th- this book is as relevant for you because you've been studying yeah. this for a long time. So in some ways, it's almost like it brings it to this very pragmatic place on how people engage in diversity, in yeah. this diversity, and actually lead it well. But just talk to us about the motivation behind this book. What's the why behind this book, specific to other things that you've written in the past? Yeah, good question. And you're right, it has been marinating a long time. I would say, realistic, three decades. 
So when I gave birth to this book, the gestation period was three decades long, kind of just marinating and, and realizing more and more people, not only in education, but business, healthcare, government, realizing we got a new kind of diversity and it's an elephant in the room. So Jeff, obviously we've yeah. been talking about ethnic diversity and gender diversity and cognitive diversity and income diversity, and all of those are very important and we need to continue to get this right. But I think the elephant in the room is that we have five, maybe six generations on a school campus, certainly in a school district, and we don't know how to talk about it. You know, that elephant in the room that's there, we all know it's there, but how do we talk about it? So you might have a 22-year-old faculty member at a school campus that brings a very different approach to not only her or his job, but her politics that she brings with her. And the, you know, the 58-year-old is going, what are you doing? You know? Yeah, right. So, and then you've got the Alpha Gen and Gen Z kids, you know, elementary and middle school and high school that have a vernacular that we do not understand. <laughs> we need to go to TikTok to figure it out. But then you've got maybe older bus drivers or lawn, you know, people that are working on the campus that go, I've lost my why. These kids are so frustrating, you know, and, and I'm just saying, instead of getting frustrated, what if we became fascinated by the different generations on the campus and we're learning from each other? We always say we're lifelong learners. This is a test. So one one last thought before you yeah, go back. Yeah, please, please. When I, I, when I get to talk to school districts, it dawns on me every time. In a K-12 setting, there literally are s six sociological generations. The, the, the builder generation, that'd be my parents' generation, yes. that you know, stuck around at 78, still mowing the lawn or doing maintenance. They just love work and they're still healthy. Then you have the baby boomers that are retiring at 10,000 a day. That's me. Then you 10,000 a day? Yeah, 10,000 a day. On average, baby boomers leave, and we feel it in education, don't we? They've been leading forever, and now we're going, oh my gosh, now we got to get ready for after Harry, you know? Indeed. So the Gen Xers are next, and they would be in the throes of their career, really the heart and soul of the, the, their career. Then you have the millennials that are young professionals, but nearing midlife now. Then you have the Gen Zers that have just entered the workforce, so they may be 23 years old, and like I said, bring a very different approach. Then you have the alpha generation kids. We're just now studying them. It's all in pencil. But the alpha kids would be elementary school to birth, down to birth. But think about this, Jeff. They've never known a day without a tablet or a smart technology. 90% of four-year-old kids are on a tablet. So I'm saying to teacher, elementary school teachers, get ready for them to question everything you say because they've been on smart technology. So it can be frustrating, but can also be fascinating. Why do you think it's an elephant? What, what do you think? I mean, it is. So yeah. I'm agreeing. Um, now, first off, just the topic of diversity yeah. is sensitive right yes, now. Yes, it is. There's yes. the you know, political polarization yeah. that we're navigating. But then this, too, is this very specific wrinkle to diversity yeah. that is an elephant. Why? Yeah. I think it is because... It is a new kind of diversity. We've been trained to think about, you know, black, brown, and, and white, and, you know, that sort of thing. Sure. So while it's hard because people are different, we at least understand that. I think I see teachers gathering in a teacher's lounge, making fun of the millennial teachers. No. That... Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> in theory, in theory. And, and, but they know they can't say that out loud somewhere else. So it's, it's, I think it's quiet conversations where we think the goal is just to tolerate each other tolerate these young whippersnappers when I'm going, I know it feels that way. I'm old too, but we've got to somehow onboard them, not just to teaching, but to leadership. They're the future, whether we like it or not, ready or not, they're the future of our schools. So this, you know, 
We recently interviewed uh, John Maxwell, you know, who is a, a yeah, colleague and a yeah. friend of yours. In fact, in the intro, he had said that um, the leadership environment we are in today is more polarizing than ever. Um, at least in his lifetime, as he mm -hmm. described, we have a choice. We will allow the environment to determine our leadership, or we will intentionally change the environment. But the concept is, what if we could resolve this dilemma um, and even benefit yeah. from these differences? I assume the challenges that we're facing is how you you know, pivot this yeah. challenge into an opportunity. That must yeah. be what mm. many people come to you with is, yep. I have this dilemma, this yeah. this problem in our work environment, and you're trying to educate them and yeah. then help yeah. them turn it into an, as an opportunity. Yeah. Am I accurate on that? Absolutely. So let me tell you what I do. Keep in mind, I'm 63, I'll be 64 this year. So I'm an old guy. What I have to tell myself is in the same way that when I cl climb on an airplane and I fly to another country, when I get off that airplane, I'm psyched up to work harder to connect with those Chinese people or French people or German people because they might have different customs. They might speak a different language. They might have different values. Bingo. If I'm a baby boomer and I've got a 23-year-old, probably different customs, probably different oh, values, indeed. different yeah. language. But see, I know I need to work at connecting in China. I don't think I should have to work that hard with a similar race, gender, you know, blah, blah, blah in, in America. So the first thing we need to do, leaders who've been around for a while, is do the work, do the work. So um, we have a 22-year-old on our team. His name is Cam. I love Cam. I, I love him like a son, but I'm telling you, he's very different from me. So I go into a meeting, psych myself, this is China. I'm in China, you know, yeah, I'm in yeah, China. It's and Cam's I, world. And it's, yeah, that's right. It's Cam's world. <laughs> but you know what I've noticed? And this is just good human behavioral science. When I lean into him, he leans back to me. I don't pretend to be cool. I'm not cool anymore. I lost that cool thing 40 years ago. But if I lean into him, and so today I'd love to talk about how do we do that leaning in so we bring out the very best in each generation that's on that campus. Well, in, in this book, that's kind of broken into these three parts. Yeah, and yeah. part number one is mind the gap. And in it, it does describe that, you know, professionals have are all always assumed that, you know, kids yeah. are yeah. lazy and disrespectful, yeah. right? Yeah. And this dates way back. Right? All the way to Socrates. All the way to Socrates. Yeah. Um, and the introduction of four and five generations, and you've mentioned a sixth today, that with this rapid pace of change, we can predict there's going to be some friction, as mm -hmm. you describe. Yeah. And then you say, the goal, though, is not to stereotype, but to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about why that is so important yeah. in this process that we're trying to lead through? Absolutely. So in my mind, stereotypes are mental shortcuts that are not helpful. How many times do we, we're just tired, we're weary of this whole thing that we're having to go through right now in education, and so we're just taking shortcuts. But we don't like to be stereotyped. We call people out if they stereotype our generation, but we do the same thing. So um, I'm saying stereotypes is signal we don't wanna do the work to really understand. And so we see the worst instead of the best. We hear one story about a lazy slacker that's 22. You're all that fragile snowflakes. That's what you are. I even <laughs> have to use that southern, southern twang. That's right. But um, you and I both know that's not true. We know terribly innovative 22-year-olds that we ought to want. We want to. We want on our team. So we've got to start there. I, I need to stop taking those mental shortcuts and do the work. But let me tell you, I think I shared this in the book. According to a MarketWatch survey report, more than half of respondents said, 
I'm unlikely to get along with a person from another generation. I'll just tell you right now, as you hire me, I'm probably not going to get along with those old folks or young folks. And I'm saying, we've got to get through this. Yeah. So, you know, in that, that, you know, you, you mentioned that if only the generations could see the value, yeah. yes. right? And yeah. as you, you, you describe in the book, I won't even attempt to do it. And it's actually not fair for, to say, can you give us maybe two hours <laughs> real quick on yeah. uh, describe, but when the, the point is, even in that first section is how you look at the value of these generations, mm -hmm. because there is inherent value, yeah. challenges too. Um, can you maybe walk us through yeah. either what some of them are or what you see as very common yeah. misunderstandings or stereotypes that may not be accurate or may not be helpful? Yeah, absolutely. So my mom and dad's generation was the builder generation, often called the silence. They grew up during the Great Depression and World War II, so the 30s and the first half of the 40s. While they may seem like dinosaurs, that would be the stereotype, mm -hmm. because I, I can't expect them to understand the latest Apple product that just came out, they bring sage wisdom and fierce loyalty. Boy, you hire somebody that's 78, they're loyal. That's all they've known is loyalty. You know, work at the factory, get your gold watch after 50 years, and don't we welcome loyalty? Oh my gosh, in a day of turnover. Boy, I could use a little loyalty. Yes. So I look to them for that. Baby boomers, I mentioned they're retiring on average at 10,000 a day. They're in their late 50s all the way through their 60s, even to early 70s. John Maxwell is an early baby boomer. I would be a late baby boomer. Um, I would say they bring stories and coaching. We need to be leveraging those boomers, even though they may still be teaching or leading a school. Tell those stories. When you were leading during comparable times in your younger years, what did we learn back then that we could apply today? Um, Xers, that would be your generation, yeah. wouldn't it? Um, Xers often bring, because they grew up in the late 60s all the way through the 70s, uh, that was a hard time. If you think about it, by the late 60s, not only was the Vietnam War going on, it was on TV. It was the first war we could watch with Walter Cronkite at the six o'clock news. So I so I can use this as an excuse for my shortfalls. It was a hard time. That's exactly right. No wonder. Yes. Okay. No wonder it's been tough. I'll explain That's right. this to my Yeah, wife. you can write okay, that down. That's good. That's yeah, right. That's right. So here's what I would say. Um, LBJ from the White House kept saying everything's fine over there in Vietnam, but we started seeing footage on the news that said, I don't think it's fine. Then you had the Watergate scandal. Now you had a Democrat and a Republican both lying from the White House. There was a very real wall that went up in the minds and hearts of American adults, not the ex-kids, but the adults. So the Xers grew up often latchkey kids, both mom and dad were working, but seeing a very skeptical adult generation, teachers, parents, coaches. Yeah. You grew up, as a generation anyway, a little more cynical. Interesting. Don't tell me life's wonderful. It's not wonderful, you know? So I looked at Gen X at, with a contrarian point of view. You might show us where, how things could go wrong. Not only that, but I need that contrarian point of view. I got some exes in our office that are so good at saying, here's what could go wrong. Good. We need to know that before we launch this program, you know, that sort of thing. And they also bring, I think, a very, a very good realism. So the millennials are very idealistic. They remain to be, the data shows. Xers will go, okay, that could happen. Hope it does. But here's what we need to prepare for. You know, that sort of thing. Sure. We need to look to our Xers, Xer friends. Millennials, they bring um, hope and idealism. Even though um, they enter the job market 
and realize it wasn't um, snowflakes and rainbows and and, and butterflies. Um, they've now been through a, a bit, but the data still shows they're they're still idealistic. They still want to change the world. We need that spirit on our campus. I want that 32-year-old teacher that hasn't lost her zeal and her zest, you know? Yes, I do know. So, <laughs> and then Gen Z. Gen Z has grown up in the 21st century. So they grew up not only with cell phones, but with smartphones. So they're hackers, not just in technology. Yeah. They're hacking their way through everything in life. They want to get behind the system, find out how it works, and make it work for them. So remember during the pandemic, we're on quarantine, and the teachers are trying to figure this virtual yes, learning do. out. Yes. yes, you do. Well, Gen Z was telling us in focus groups, we, we know more than our teacher yes, does. Now. Hurry you, up. That's right. <laughs> or I'm cheating and she doesn't even know it. You know, that sort of thing. So now we need to build a little morality in these kids because they're often all moral, not immoral, all moral. I don't know. I, if, I, if it works for me, it's it's good. Yeah. And of course, that's not always true. Yeah. So I don't know. That was, I'm hoping that was helpful. But I'm just saying each generation, I want to I want an entrepreneurial spirit and that new teacher. Did you know, Jeff, this is, I put this in the book, 70% of public high school students who are, by the way, about to graduate, want to be an entrepreneur. 70? 70, not seven. So are they all going to succeed? Probably not. But that spirit, how could a principal leverage that entrepreneurial spirit, launching maybe a gig economy within the school? How we're launching programs and trying things out. And that Gen Zer wants to stick around rather than quit after a year because they have a place of freedom and autonomy. I can I can just imagine what we could do in our districts if we leverage the strength each one of these generations bring. And in some ways that almost that it's an opportunity, but it's also a, a clash as it relates mm -hmm. yeah. to the current system, right? Yeah. Yeah. We have a system that is really driven based upon these, these standards and proficiencies yeah. Yeah. that are aligned to not just assessments, but coursework that are mandated, mm -hmm. that come from the feds yeah. to the states. Yeah. And therefore, right, our kids are taking classes occasionally on something that's intriguing to them, but often because they have to. Yeah, it's and true. I have to take this course because if I want to go to the next level, I have to, which doesn't align to the concept yeah, of yeah. being an entrepreneur, yeah. which is how do I solve problems in creative yeah, ways, right? right? So it's interesting that conflict, but also the opportunity it may create. Yeah, yeah, and it's easy to find the conflict. There's no doubt about it. If we want people to be the same as we are, I would just say, good luck. It's not going to happen. In fact, I even say this in the book. The generation gap was first noticed back in the 60s. Uh, John Poppy, the Life Magazine editor, saw that the baby boomers, the new kids on the block, were there was such a gap in the generations. But here's my theory. The generation gap has grown wider with time when the screens in our life went from public to private. So we had one screen in our house when I was a child. Black and white TV. Absolutely. We all gathered around and talked together and laughed together as we watched I Love Lucy or Dick Van Dyke or whatever. But it was a together experience. Fast forward to today, we all have our own screen, don't we? You were all just talking about how on vacation you were, just, you were all screen. Yeah, scrolling. all the different sections of the hotel room, all on our own phones and That's yeah, right. watching our own stuff. Yep. So it's not evil, but I'm just saying, think you can be in an echo chamber of people, your people, not your kids' people. And I'm saying we've got to find ways to bring and leverage these different generations that are right in front of us.
You know, Tim, when I prepare for these leader chats, yeah. um, I either um, have the hardcover book, yeah. sometimes I'll go into Kindle, and sometimes I listen to an audio book. I've told you that um, this A New Kind of Diversity, I've actually given it out as Christmas presents I was giving out to s certain people. So I, I read it at the time, but recently I went through Kindle. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, um, I highlight on Kindle, yeah. and then you can look at your own highlights. I went to go summarize to create, you know, the court or our discussion points. Yeah. And I had pages and pages and pages <laughs> of highlighted material. So it was actually not helpful for me because it was so way sorry. too much, right? And actually you described this dilemma with highlighting, right? Yes, in general, right. right? That's so, right. Yeah. Um, but section two yeah. really starts kind of delve into the contributions, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Which is, um, in fact, what is it called? Um, section two, managing the gas, yes. right? Yeah. And so, it, but it does, it kind of talks about these very specific and important contributions of the different yeah. generations that you just described. Can you talk about why that's so important to see them as contributions? Uh, does that help create empathy? Is that the concept? Yeah, absolutely. So this is quite interesting to me. When I began to interview respondents from all five of the generations that are in the workplace, from builders all the way down to Gen Z, I ask each generation, what do you want from others from a different generation than you when they interact with you? Okay. Well, you can imagine I got a truckload of answers, but three answers came up in every single generation. Here's what they were. I want humility. I wish, let's say I'm a young person, I wish older people when they interacted started with humility, meaning I have more to learn. I'm not, I don't know everything. I, I have more to learn. Isn't that refreshing when we meet people like that? Yes. Well, they want that. Number two was respect. That's predictable. Um, we've heard that word forever. Thank you, Aretha Franklin. Okay. Yep, that's right. But isn't it interesting? Old and young both said, would you begin with belief? Rather than say, you better earn my respect, Sonny. What if we said, I'm going to begin with respect to that 22-year-old team member. And you know what I found when I do that with Cam? He respects me back. But I'm the leader. I need to initiate that. The third one, Jeff, was not one I predicted. Every of the five generations, everyone said, approach me with curiosity. Meaning, I know I'm about to learn something from you or get something from you, 20-something or 30-something or 40-something. Can you imagine school districts where, as we interact, I can only imagine, it's curiosity, it's respect, it's humility. Oh my gosh, that's a team. That's yeah. a team. Yeah. Now, this may be putting you on the spot. It may okay. be an unfair question. Okay. Um, out of out of the generational, um, you know, kind of complexities yeah. that are brought yeah. to the table, um, do you find that one particular generation? Um, has more difficulty being patient, curious, mm -hmm. understanding, empathetic yeah, towards? Yeah. Or is it across the board that everyone <laughs> just tends to jump towards yeah. judgment statements and, you know, maybe rhetoric? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm going to give you an anecdotal answer because okay. I don't have data in front of me. Um, my guess is that as we get older, we become a little less patient. <laughs> At least I do. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, you know, I stick a muffin in the microwave. This thing's taking 60 seconds. What's wrong with this thing? You know, that sort of thing. I also know that the data shows worldwide, Gen Z, while they're certainly not perfect, has a um, predisposition toward tolerance, you know, and acceptance of, you know, LGBTQ and, 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 you know, that sort of thing. Sure. So, 
I would I, I don't know if this is right, but I think as we get older, we have to work harder at the at the patients. So let me give you a quick a okay. couple of studies. Early in the book, you might remember I talk about Tony. Yes. True story. Yeah. So Tony was finishing college up in Ohio, and he took a part-time job at a paint store, a major retail brand paint store. This is a great story. So keep going. It was so fun to read and then research. So Tony, while he's working at this place, happens to get a TikTok account, okay? And he starts posting. Then he starts posting pictures of him mixing paint colors, Okay, like he'd put blueberries in white paint and create a vivid shade of blue. He thought it was cool. Well, so did people. When Tony gets up to 1.7 million followers, and I think it was something like 37 million views on his TikTok account, he thought, you know what? We could monetize this. Yeah. I mean, this could be used for marketing. And, and, and he liked his job, by the way. He, that's exactly right. right. Unlike many students, he actually liked his yeah. job. He was asking for extra shifts. So he decides, I'm going to put a slide deck together and show the executives, this could be a really great thing for this paint brand. Well, he puts a slide deck together, proposes that he take a little time with the management, and Tony does not get one person interested in hearing from him. Doesn't get one set of eyeballs to look at a slide deck. Tony did get something he didn't expect. He got fired. Yeah. Yeah. Because, think about stereotypes now, they were just sure this young whippersnapper was doing this on company time. You know, he's probably stealing the paint. He's probably stealing the paint. And he's probably, you know, distracting to the customers. So they let him go. Get this. Tony graduates, moves from Ohio down to Florida, now has well over 2 million followers, and has started his own paint store. So there's probably lots we don't understand about this story, but here's one thing I do understand. Don't you think they missed an opportunity? Yes. Because they didn't see it. It wasn't our idea. This young guy doesn't know what he's doing. That's Maybe that's the rookie smarts he brings. We need to remember eight paradoxes. Yeah. Maybe I the fact that I don't know what I'm doing could be a thing you could leverage, yeah. Mr. Principal or Mr. Manager. So that was one story. Now, the other story I thought I would leverage, and for the sake of the older generation people listening right now, Laura is a, is a, a sharp, sharp HR executive at a company right here in Atlanta. And Laura told me that she absolutely loves young team members. She loves interviewing them, coaching them, mentoring them, onboarding them. But when she spoke to me after a conference I had spoken on this subject, she said, Tim, I'm just exhausted. I said, oh, you had so many interviews? She said, no, it wasn't the volume of interviews. It was the value. And I said, dare I ask you what that means? She began to rifle off stories, Jeff, that um, it made me cringe. And I, But the context was she loves, she loves these kids. She talked about walking one young man, recently graduated from college, through the office because she planned to hire him. While they're walking, he asked the question, when spring break? She said, well, uh, we, we work all year round here. <laughs> we, we, we actually work eight hours a day, 40 days a week. We don't have spring yeah, break. Yeah, you're no longer in school. That's right. Right? Yeah, he was, was preparing. All, that was all newsflash. For this. That's right. exactly right. Yeah, yeah. He could not make the leap from, from classroom to workroom. And so he said, um, I'm just not an eight hour a day sort of guy. I'm going to need lots of free time. And, and he walked out. So now, not the end of the world, but I'm thinking, oh, if somebody had gotten you ready, had career readiness been an aim of that school instead of just yeah. get good grades and yeah. hopefully you graduate. Um, another young lady, <laughs> she received a job offer from Laura and she said, thank you, which is good. Gratitude is good. But then she said, but um, Laura, now my parents need to interview you to make sure you're a suitable boss for me. You're my, my parents? Yes. Yeah. 
So they're agents, you know. Yeah. Now, again, I won't go any on, but I, there's a there's a, a misstep that's happening right now between the school's job, Horace Mann told us, was to get them ready for life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. In fact, schools started with bells and whistles because factories started with bells and whistles. We still do that today. Nothing wrong, but I'm just saying, maybe we need to say, what gets them ready and could we do that? Um, that's what I dream about. Well, that, that's why this, this topic is so relevant, because not only um, is the workplace challenge mm -hmm. that you describe so real and relevant and happening um, in schools, but, you know, sometimes schools can easily, unintentionally mm -hmm. slip into this very traditional yeah, mode. Yeah. And sadly, the goal of school is not to help our children become good in school. Yeah, right. The goal of school is to help them navigate the world once they yeah. leave us. Yes. And then yeah. therefore, right, how do we embrace some of the opportunities, to your point, around 70% of students yeah. wanting to be entrepreneurs, Yeah, which may misalign to what we're asking them yeah. to study and mm -hmm. to test on and so yeah. forth. So. How do we become maybe more flexible, not only with each other, but specifically yeah. with what we're trying to train our kids yeah. to do in the workplace, yeah. which is why this book is so rich, if that makes sense. Well, I hope so. When I was doing a focus group recently of high schoolers, one student very respectfully but bluntly said, teachers are obsolete. I don't need them. Now, he's wrong, but you could see why he might yeah, yeah. say that. Yes, I, I got a smartphone, I got a tablet, I got Wi-Fi. Uh, so, so our job isn't for information, it's for interpretation. Let me help you make sense of all that you know. I realize you watch 18 YouTube videos. Now let me give context to the content. But it's a changing of the way we approach education. And I know I'm not the only one saying there's a million other smarter people than me, but I'm lobbying for today as you are. Could we teach with the end in mind? Could we lead as superintendents with the end in mind and push them, not just for GPAs and graduation rates, those are great, but boy, they're ready to lead us because we'll be in a wheelchair one day and needing somebody to lead us well. Yeah. Well, I mean, as new technology, as AI mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. just, I mean, yeah. just wait five more years, right? And so yeah. if, if we don't really embrace helping our kids as critical yeah. thinkers, yeah. Um, we're in trouble because yes, we, we will, be, as educators, as teachers, become less relevant unless we find ways to embrace some new technologies coming up That's exactly that our kids right. will use whether we like it or not. That's exactly right. right? And maybe misuse if we don't guide them. Yes, yeah. indeed. So we don't need to be gods. We need to be guides. We're not controlling this thing, but we're consulting with them as they learn and we're teaching them how to move forward morally. Do you mind if I hijack this just for a second? I just had a... That's, that's, that's what you're here for. Okay, hijack. Yeah. Okay. So when I think about human history and where we are now. It's so different than where we were, let's say, millenniums ago. So way back thousands of years ago, it was the agricultural age. Remember studying that in world history. And at the agricultural age, in order to thrive in that day, you needed good muscles. Everything was outside and you had to be strong. Right, right. The stronger you were, the more you succeed. Then we moved into the industrial age. And in order to thrive in the industrial age, machines. The better your machine, the more you get done in that factory, et cetera, et cetera. You and I grew up in the information age. Remember hearing that? Yes. And now, really, in order to thrive, it's your minds. Every administrator listening would say, I want the kids that graduate from my school, you, good mind. I want to have good mind. Jeff, I think smart technology is leading us into a different age. And I'm calling it the intelligence age, where 
our cars are smart, our tech is smart, our soon our washers and dryers will be smart. You'll be able to throw your shirt in to the washer and it will say, wash me in cold water, hot water, you know, warm water, whatever. I think in order to thrive, it's our morals. We're going to have to, te- and I know that's dangerous because these are public schools we're in, but we've got to find a way to say this is right and this is wrong. There's a lot of gray for sure, but it's no longer, good mind is good, but if I have a good mind without a strong sense of ethic and there's artificial intelligence available, I'm scared. Well, ethic, but also mentioned in the book too, is this, um, the, the the need for emotional intelligence, right? Yeah, which that's right. Which is which does start to kind of tap on this this ethical dilemma on mm-hmm. how do we how do we think through yeah. challenges? How do we interpret them with yeah. um, you know with clear lines of what's right and wrong, but in the meantime, some empathetic understanding yes. on yeah. why is the challenge being brought before mm-hmm. us, right? So yeah. that EQ was was hit on several times in the book as well. Yeah, I, I am absolutely enthralled with the idea of how could we attach valuing IQ and EQ in our, in our students. So um, I think EQ is the smart pill we can take yeah. that brings us to know how to read not only verbal and nonverbal, but paraverbal. I see the tone that you just used, Jeff. Are you okay today? You know, that sort of thing. I don't think a machine can do that, at least not right now, but we can do it as school administrators and we can teach our faculty. So yeah, emotional intelligence is absolutely necessary. I think I even shared a story in the book um, about Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Hughes. You did? Remember this story? Yep. Did you highlight it? Of course I okay. Like I said, <laughs> I, I highlighted the book. I could, I could use paint, right? Yes, okay. Thank you. You're so kind. Well, listeners, uh, this, this story is such a great picture of what EQ can do for us. So L- Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Hughes was in Iraq, the second invasion, when we were over there as an allied force. But at this stage of the ballgame, he was receiving packages of food, clothing, and... Um, blankets to take to people who had been displaced, Iraqi people who were in this village but weren't from this village. The Taliban had run them out. Well, he's thinking to himself, how do I distribute these? We're American forces. They don't trust us over here. They're already displaced. So he got the thought, what if I take, what if I go over to the local cleric of the mosque, the local Muslim mosque? They do trust that guy, whoever they are, because this is a Muslim country. So he gets permission. The cleric goes, sure, I'll pass things out here. So you can imagine what this looks like. He gets his troop to march these packages on the right shoulder, rifle or gun on the left shoulder. They're marching down Main Street, taking these things to the mosque. Well, the locals see what's going on and they think, you're about to bomb our mosque. I mean, every time they'd seen a package walk down the road, that's not a good thing. So by the time Lieutenant Colonel Christopher, Lieutenant Colonel Hughes gets to the Oh, maybe 200 feet away. It's surrounded by Iraqis, locals, villagers with rocks and sticks, yeah, and they is, are ready for street It's going to be bad. Yeah, yeah it's right. going to be bad. In fact, it's going to be bad physically for us, but minimally it's going to be bad PR for everybody involved. So he wisely orders his troops to stop 200 feet away. He orders them next to set their package down and point their guns to the ground. That signaled Okay, you're, you're safe now. Then he told his troop to take a knee, a most vulnerable position if you've got people in front of you with rocks and, and sticks. And then he ordered his troop, the men and women in his troop, to look up into the faces of these people and smile. One by one, they started dropping their sticks and their rocks. I'm getting emotional telling this story. But they set their rocks down, and that gave 
cues enough time to find somebody that spoke the local dialect to walk explain. up and explain, yeah. yes, we're here to help you, not hurt you. Well, disaster was averted. But I don't think he read that on page 57 of the Army Manual. No. I think he was a strong, most emotionally intelligent leader. And I'm thinking school leaders, we've got to have this in our pocket that we're emotionally aware of what's going on. People are anxious and they're tired and they're quitting. And we've got to be people that go, I can read that. And what you don't need is another order right now. What you need yeah. is, is an armor on the shoulder and maybe a, maybe even a little love. I don't yeah. know. That's weird. I know. But I bet you they're going to stay if they feel loved. So that's I do talk about how we've got to express that and find a way in every generation right. to, to do that right. Well, it's yeah. it's it's not weird. It's not weird at all. In 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 the the last section of of the book called bridging the gap, mm -hmm. right? That's where um, in in many ways the rubber starts meeting the road, yeah. specific to yeah. the leader. So um, leaders, as you're as you're reading this, make sure you focus on this third section, which really then starts create strategy mm -hmm. tools. You know, you're you're walking them through activities on things to consider that brings people to the table. Yeah. So um, I assume that that was very intentional. Of yeah. I have to leave our readers yeah. with tools on what they. They can do to navigate this. Am I right? Because Absolutely. it is as pragmatic as yeah. as I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. So I, I rounded up some best practices that are being used not just in schools but businesses. Um, and it was so fun to write this. In fact, I, like you in your reading, I in my writing, I thought, where do I cut? Where do I cut? The first thing I would say to a leader, a superintendent, or whatever would be, make sure you talk about expectations right up front. Gen Z brings an audacious set of expectations oftentimes that we might want to talk about it before we make the hire. You know, if they're yeah. asking something you can't do, then you tell them right away and, and dismiss them or, or lead them to the door. So that's going to be key. Managing expectations, conflict. You know, I have a whole chapter on on that. Um, but I, I, I talk about um, in that particular section of the book, some metaphors. And I don't know if you want to hop into this now, but the different images. Oh, uh, well, before we do, because okay, I, I, okay. Is that I want to jump back to this piece about an expectation because oh, okay, yeah. there was this, this line that said uh, preferences, expectations, and requirements. Yeah. Yeah. equals tensions, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And then it led to that chapter, which is how yeah. you manage yeah, these right. expectations because the dilemma, as you describe, is that there are expectations that we have for each other. And then if in fact that expectation is not met based upon yes. you know, circumstances, yes. cultures, yeah. so many other things, and of course, generational differences, mm. then naturally we are going to come to a standstill. Yeah, it's so true. Right. Well, in that part of the book, I talk about Maggie and Antonio. So they're not in a school context, but they were in a restaurant context. And this particular um, brand uh, was a very good brand, by the way. Uh, Maggie interviewed Antonio for a job. He's a young man, about 20, I guess. And um, he agrees, I can work hard. And he had some work experience. So she thought this might guy, this guy might really fit. So she goes through the policies and values. He agrees to it. She hires him. About two or three weeks later, Maggie's on the same shift as Antonio and notices this, this big glaring tattoo on his arm. Not the end of the world, but one of their policies at this particular brand was sometimes that's off-putting to some of her older customers. Let's just not have tattoos. Mm -hmm. He didn't mention it. She was put out not by the tattoo, but why didn't you get honest in the interview? Well, he covered it up, and then it wasn't covered with the uniform now. So they have a little come-to-Jesus meeting in the back office, mm -hmm. and she says, Antonio, why won't you honest with me? Which I think is a legitimate question. 
He thinks his identity, his very identity is being attacked. This is a part of who I am. And oftentimes Gen Z believes their piercings and their tattoos, not all, but often, thinks this, you're questioning my very identity. Well, that started a, you know, a, a small war <laughs> verbally. And they met three times and never worked it out. On the fourth time, though, Maggie exhibited emotionally intelligent leadership. In short, she said, Antonio, you're a great worker, and I don't want to lose you. At the same time, in the interview, you were not completely honest with me, and everybody knows you have a tattoo. They all can't have tattoos, or they make sure they cover them. So if you'll agree that you're going to cover that thing up every single time you work, even if you have to wear something under your uniform sure. in July, you're going to do it. And then she said, let's you and I get out in front of the whole team and both apologize. And they did. They got a standing ovation. But I think she was wise in keeping a good team member, but she didn't compromise what their policy was. But she told me later, I called, uh, you know, the support center headquarters. Could we change that policy maybe in the future, you know? And I thought, what a great, she's representing her young team members well, but she's also enforcing, this is the deal. And we're not going to break the rule because you like your tattoo, Antonio. Did she offer to get her first tattoo? <laughs> no? Because that, that would have taken it that, one step further. One step further to right? identifying with your team. Exactly That's right. right. Yes. Well, now now I want you to hijack uh, okay. this next okay. because this this these six images were yeah. I mean, you know, just a really helpful chapter for anyone to say, okay, what do I do now, or how do I manage this? Because yeah. this is not only giving a tool, it's giving activity. So yeah. do you want to walk through those? You know, starting sure. with Chester checkers, quarterbacks, referees. Okay. You want to walk through this kind of sure. breeze us through because. That's a, that's a chapter everyone needs to get to. Well, you're very kind. I love metaphors. In fact, habitudes oh, yeah. are it's images. So these are some of our habitudes. Uh, and even though we primarily use habitudes with students for SEL, these are habitudes for grownups. Okay. So which one would you like to start with? Uh, let's do chess and checkers. Okay. Chess and checkers is a, is a helpful one for me. Um, so listeners, when you play the game of chess and you play the game of checkers, it starts with the very same game board. So you could be tempted to think, oh, must be the same game. You and I both know that's not true. Right. When I play checkers, all my pieces look alike. They all move alike. So I treat them all alike. In chess, if I have any hope of winning the game, I have to know what each piece can do. That a knight goes up two and over one, and a bishop goes sideways, and a rook and a pawn. Only in knowing the strength of each piece can I win. I think mediocre leaders play checkers with their people. They treat them all alike, and they get average performance. Mm -hmm. Great leaders have learned to play chess in the relationships of their life. And they connect with others at the uniqueness of their strength, their personality, and their generation. And they, those people flourish. So it's more work to play chess. Yep. Think about those two games. It, it yep. takes longer. It's more work. But I'm telling you, chess leaders are the ones who win. So that's one of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you want to do quarterbacks and referees? Yes, I do. Okay. This is one I came up with for myself because I was turning into a, a bad leader. Oh, interesting. Well, so we had, we, had a little, we had a little trouble during the pandemic in 2020 with some of our team members. So here's the bottom line. Every football game, you know, we're in the South, so football is a religion. Yes, it is. Um, every football game has two leaders at least on the field. There's the referee who, you know, who's out there with a striped shirt. We need him or her. But then there's the quarterback. Jobs are very different. The quarterback's moving the ball down the field, calling a huddle, moving forward, passing the ball off, and cheering his teammates on as they score. 
The referees throwing flags, calling fouls, telling people we're out of, out of bounds. You know what I noticed in my career? In my career, I started with a quarterback mindset, inspiring the team to move forward. I turned into a referee, <laughs> calling fouls. By the way, I did it as a dad too. My kids turned teenagers. You're out of bounds. You know? Yeah. Bunch of referee dads and moms. So while I understand we do need boundaries, and I'm not saying just giggle and laugh all day long, I think we need to maintain the spirit of a quarterback. Uh, superintendents, principals, when you go back, you be a quarterback this fall, and you move the ball down the field, and you guard yourself about being wigging out over the carpet got stained or the wall got chipped or whatever. There's better things to worry about. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's can we do some more though? Yeah. Uh, sure. Um, what about uh, vampires? Right. Oh, uh, wait. <laughs> yeah. What does that go? Vampire bridges or walls? No. Wait. Is it guide dogs? Or yeah. Shirt? Yeah. Guard dogs and guide okay, dogs. Okay. Do that one. Guard okay. dogs and guide dogs. This may be my favorite of all the 140 we have now because that's the one I need the most. So think about these two dogs, listeners. I know this is weird. Go with me on this. We've given dogs, canines, service jobs through the years. Two of the most common jobs are the guard dog and the guide dog, but their jobs are very different. The guard dog's job is to protect, right? They're in some sort of a pen and they're growling at intruders and sniffing out trouble and barking. The guide dog's job is to partner. They're usually put up next to a person that can't see as well, maybe can't see at all. And they're leading the way. They go first, right? Uh, they, 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 they guide and so forth. So think about this. The guard dog's job is to protect. The guide dog's job is to partner. Yes. I think when we are anxious, and I would say this is probably an anxious time. When people that we lead are anxious, we all default to guard dog. The amygdala in our brain is firing fight or flight. We hold our cards close to our chest. We don't trust. We're guarding the money, the budget, our people. And I'm telling you, in anxious times, people long for a guide dog leader who's going first, being vulnerable, being transparent, maybe tipping our hand instead of holding the cards and saying, boy, this has been scary, hasn't it? Let's, let's go forward together. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. But that means we keep it real. And we don't try to pretend we got all the answers and we're all together. We're not all together. We don't know what we're doing sometimes. I have a hard time being a guide dog, but Jeff, when I'm a guide dog, my people love me, I think. In fact, they tell me, I yeah. love the way you led us today. You were vulnerable. You were transparent. So um, your brain will tell you to do guard dog. You've got to lead yourself and be a guide dog. Well, and in the meantime, you have a whole chapter that talks about how to be flexible. Yeah. Without giving in. Yeah. Right? And <laughs> yes. so, yeah. I mean, it's... You know what you're describing, right? Is this importance on you know how how we lead and how we're and how we're flexible? But yeah. you know you're not saying that we just give in that's to everything right. either, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah, there's a whole chapter on that. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the name of the game today. I think is flexibility. We're flexible with maybe remote workplaces if we can, if we can. So I think if we can learn, particularly as cult control freaks, to be a little more flexible and adaptable, but holding the core, we can't give in on the core. That's that's that that's that paradox of stubborn and open-minded. Yeah. So we're open-minded on most every area, but we have a core set of values and principles that we lead by that we say, I can't give in on these. So if these don't work for you, Nancy or Bob, I, I want to help you find another job. This is who we are. Yeah. yeah. Now, I can't wait, Tim, 
that in October, you know, we have this opportunity that, you know, you're going to be working with our leaders yeah. where they're going to be around a table talking with you, not being talked at. Yes. Where yeah. They can ask questions, not just us talking in a microphone and sending them the content. Um, now, we say circles are better than rows, yeah. which is something we I, I stole from Andy Sand Stanley because yeah. it aligns to our concept yeah. of leaders helping other leaders and mm -hmm. people not leading yeah. alone. Yeah. But if we were to imagine right now that we're around a table, this is our famous kind of final yeah. question. Um, what advice, what kind of words of wisdom would you want to kind of leave superintendents down through principals, yeah. leaders, educational leaders with? What would be kind of, for now, this is what I recommend you think about or do? Mm, wow, good question. I love the term marching off the map. I can say that because I didn't make up the term. It actually comes to us from centuries ago. Um, Alexander the Great put three armies together, marched across the known world and conquered every bit of territory on his way. But he didn't stop there. He continued to march into lands and territories for which we had no maps yet. We have some of our world today mapped out thanks to Alexander the Great. So he was known to frustrate some of his soldiers. They were learning to draw out maps as they marched. I think that's where we are today in education. We got to draw new maps. And as we're marching, we can't stop, keep marching, but keep drawing new maps. Let's march into brand new, let's try some things out. And if it works, let's draw a map for the people that come behind us. So in October, I hope to talk a little bit about how do we march off the map and start lead with the end in mind, yes. but draw some brand new maps for the people behind us. Yeah. Well, I, I haven't heard it described that way. Mm. And, you know, leading or thinking with the end in mind is yeah. very important, yes. right? Because yeah. people need some sort of structure. Yeah. But how do we know what the end is mm. at a time as yeah. not only as turbulent but as fast <laughs> as now who knows yes. what it's going to be 10 years from now that's silly for us to know yeah. right so yeah. um this marching off the map is something um between even now and then i'm going to steal and use I, I love that well i did a book on it actually in 2017 and it was written for educators because i even saw then six years ago we're gonna have to figure out a whole new way than just replicating what we've done in the past. So you steal it. Um, I think it's the name of the game in almost every industry. I don't think it's schools alone. I think in business and healthcare and government, I think we're crying out for Washington DC leaders. Hey, people that are 80, step aside. <laughs> Let's let the 40 somethings and 50 somethings take their place. Yeah. So anyway, that's just my opinion. Well, Tim, thank you for your time today. Yeah. Thank you for your work and your wisdom and your research and everything you do to provide us this, this content and these things to think about. And in this case, too, just these ideas on what they can do day to day to yeah. manage this complexity within the schools and the districts and of course other organizations you're working with so you're just you're making such a difference thank you so much for what well, you do. i feel the same way about you jeff thanks for letting me all talk right to you. well thank you ladies and gentlemen um see this th this is this dilemma this opportunity is something that i know you as leaders are grappling with every single day not just as it relates to supporting students, but how you work with your teachers and the incredible amounts of diversity, even though at time is it, it is an elephant in the room, it needs to be addressed if we want to create this sort of health 
an organizational structure that is best for our people and our children. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for appreciating this content as I have. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, be well.